good old school hospitality. You know, it's often lost. And I think, you know, we, we sort of need to breed it back into the industry as a whole. But just bringing those simple elements of hospitality back in is what we, we really want to focus on. Pubs are such an important feature of the Australian dining, drinking, living landscape. Uh, but where are they at now? How? What part do they play in the hospitality industry for punters, but also for staff? Uh, today, we are talking to publican Vincent McGrath. He uh, leads the recently relaunched Central Club Hotel in Melbourne. Vincent, welcome to Dirty Linen. Danny, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm great and really excited about this chat because we are going to get into some industry nitty gritty as well as talk about the place of pubs in the yeah in the dining world these days. Tell us, let's set the scene for us. Tell us a bit about the Central Club Hotel and what you're up to there at the moment. Yeah, great. So Central Club is um, it's another one of those. Melbourne corner pubs that's had a revamp essentially um, there's, it's, it's happened quite a lot we've seen over the last sort of 10 years these prominent corner sites have been bought up by either developers or people with you know grand plans and whether or not the hospitality element remains on the ground floor is never certain um, our building was purchased in 2017 um, and it was always the intention by the owners who are the AMF, the Nursing Federation to keep the hospitality on the ground floor so it's it's a it's a, a building that's steeped in history. It's we 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 can the first reference of a liquor license in this building we can find is 1869. So it's been licensed for over 150 years. Now it's gone through different hands along the way, and we've gone we've gone through all the press clippings that we can find in the archives to figure out you know who had it for what period of time. It had different sort of faces. Um, the owners of the building until 2017 actually had it for 42 years. So there's a whole heap of history behind those guys, and they're actually still in the industry. They still own um, the building that houses the um, the, oh, the North Melbourne. The, oh, God, I've completely got out of my head now. I can't remember. <laughs> the courthouse. Uh, so they, they still own the courthouse, which actually opened up two days before we did. Yeah, it's all happening. I know, yeah. North Melbourne was completely dead for two and a half years or three years. Neither of our buildings had a business in them. And then within a week, we're both open at the same time. So, which is great because it gives, when things like that happen together like that, it gives the whole place a boost. And we've heard from so many locals that North Melbourne was was missing, you know, was missing a good local. It was missing a good pub. And all of a sudden, like a bus, you know, you're waiting so long for one to arrive and two arrive at the same time. So um, we've been getting lots of great feedback that it has that both of us and the courthouse have, have given the whole area a bit of a lift. But yeah, like I said, we, we took over the building in 2017. We, we ran the business, ran it through COVID and then knew that we'd have a two and a half year or three year build. So we got it done in just about two and a half years. We took over the, the building from the three owners, like I said, who had it for over 40 years. It was three brothers who were sort of superstars in the North Melbourne hospitality industry in their own right. They had a really um, loyal followers. It was a very different pub to what we have now. It was very much a drinking pub. It was an early opener. We've still got a 6 a.m. license, but it's um, it was an opener. They used to open at 6 a.m. And that was particularly for the market traders across the road, but just right across from Queen Victoria Market. So the original license would have been granted for that reason, you know, to, to you know, by, by 6 a.m., most of the market workers have done half a day's work. You know, that's their lunch break time. So 
we took over from them. We wanted to really make sure that when we had our plans and we were designing what we've eventually designed, that we took into account what had happened in the building before. We got as much of the history from the guys, and we actually worked with the previous owners a lot. It's the the Adoni brothers. And they came out of high school to work in, in the business with their dad who bought the building in the 60s. And two of them actually never worked anywhere else. That's all they ever did was work in the Central Club Hotel until they sold it in 2017. So being able to tap into what they had learned about the building and what had happened in the building and the different sort of, you know, they they ran it they ran it a couple of different ways. You know, they didn't they didn't always have the six a six a.m. open, but they went back to it after a while. They, um, so it was really interesting to chat to them and then try and put some of their their history back into the new build. And we've done that in a number of different ways. They actually gifted us a grandfather clock that was in the building when their father purchased it in the 60s. So that we have that downstairs in, in what we call our depot bar. We've opened, we've got a cocktail bar downstairs that we're, we're hoping to open soon. And that cock, or that grandfather clock is sitting there and that sort of reminds us every day of what's happened in the building before us. You know, we're not, we're definitely not the first custodians of this building. There's a lot of history that's gone behind us and we want to really pay respect to that and try and implement that into what we're doing moving forward. Wow, what an interesting tale. I know that at least for some of that time they ran it as a band venue because in a previous life I was a roadie and I remember carrying amps in and out of that building and I think working a lighting desk. So it certainly has had a lot of incarnations. But how how amazing to go in there and I guess think about those layers and also respect them um, when you refashion the pub. Yeah, hundred percent. And we 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 want to make sure that that it does remain as a pub, you know. And that that was one of our big, you know, when it when when we're given this blank canvas, and so the building's got a heritage overlay on us on the um, facade. So the facade was the only thing that that was going to remain. So we we had a blank canvas. We wanted to make sure though that we we still produce the bones of what is a corner pub. And to me, there's there's sort of a there's a layout that most traditional corner pubs would have, and that and this this pub did have it. This building had it when we took it over in 2017. It had those three separate areas. It had the public bar in the front where all the drinking went on. There was a pool table in there as well. So, and I, I reckon there was a few parties used to happen over the pool table, which happens in most venues. People people don't don't like having their own rules that they they can't stick to. Then there was a middle bar, which was higher tops and more casual, and then there was a bistro at the back. So we, we knew that because of what was going above us, that there'd be an open plan on the ground floor. But we tried to stick to those three defined areas that you should kind of find in a normal, you know, in a, a traditional pub. And we took, I took a bit of sort of, um, a bit of notice of what others were doing quite well in, in, the, in the industry who still had those areas. So there's plenty of pubs that do, you know, the casual dining and the beer drinking and maybe even the TAB in the front bar and the middle bar, and they've got the more serious dining that happens at the back. There's a few examples that, you know, come to mind pretty quickly, like Lamaro's or even the Graham Hotel in Port Melbourne now are doing it very well. So I wanted to have that structure, but we had, we had an open plan design. So we've still, and without signposting it, we still sort of have that flow where the drinkers, we sort of want to go one way into one part of the, the, the building. And then there's the more high tops for the casual dining up along the Victoria Street end. And then at the back of the building, up up um, towards the kitchen and in, you know, in, in on a, a dog leg right, we sort of have the more formal dining and we set that 
with dinnerware. We set that with glassware. So if you're coming in for a more of a, a formal sit down or a business lunch or dinner, that's generally where where we're seating those kind of guests. It's so interesting hearing you talk about it. You know, it makes me think of the way house design has changed as well, where we've got more of that open plan. You know, the the, the living and the dining sort of blends into one. Um, I mean, what is it that keeps pubs relevant? You know, so much has changed in the way that we eat, but why does it still work to have this classic structure? It's funny. I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's definitely changed. I think the, the pub culture, from what I can see, is, you know, and I, I've been in the industry here for 16 years, it's definitely changed. I think they're definitely more food focused and that's something that operators and we really had to pay attention to is that I think just having an average pub classics menu now is it, it doesn't cut it people are people aren't i think for a long time food and pubs was secondary to what else was going on like drinking or punting or the pool table or whatever else whereas now i think food is the focus so i think you really have to pay as much attention to your menu and have your menu down down pat and have it you know so that it suits quite a few different demographics and then the drinking from from my end is kind of secondary we've we, we've got enough stats now we've got four months of stats to show us that it's pretty much 50-50 our food sales and our drink sales. Now, traditionally, that wouldn't have been the case. It was always weighted more towards the, you know, the drink sales. So to me, having the food balance is really, really important. I think you have to be family friendly now as well. I think you have to be friendly to all different demographics. Everyone's going to the pub now. The pub isn't seen just as, like I said, as that, as that drinking spot that people go to for 10 pints. It's, it's a real social gathering spot. It's where people are meeting up. We found in particular on a Sunday, we because of where we're positioned, we're sort of halfway between a lot of a lot of people, a lot of places. So it's a good halfway point for families to meet. So we're seeing we're seeing tables booking on a Sunday um, that have got three or four generations coming out for lunch. You know, so you have to cater for all those. You know, if you're a dingy pub that's only serving, you know, pints and there's there's racing on in the corner, that's not gonna suit no, you you know, your granny who wants to come out and see the see the grandkids for Sunday lunch. That's so interesting. Uh, There's so many points I'd like to pick up on. But one of those, let's start with the menu because I think it's so, I I agree. Like I think you you can't just see a pub classics menu. You want to see a bit of variety, a bit of interest. I suppose you want to see that the kitchen is thinking about the food. It's not just like, you know, just a series of, you know, box ticking exercises when you put together a menu but then I want to see that but then so often I'll be like but you know what I really want I just want a palmer so (laughs) let's talk about this this palmer index like where does the palmer sit in your pub and how you know how yeah where does it sit has the price of it had to change like where yeah let's 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 go deep on the palmer yeah, well, I, I think we should because it's it, like, like you just mentioned there, the Chicken Parma Index. It is a thing, and it was. I think the the Financial Review wrote it up about two weeks ago and showed an index of how the price of the Parma has changed. And there's so much you can take, you can get from that. That that doesn't show you just that chicken's gone up. It shows you that there's a whole heap of factors in the industry that are impacting on the price of the prized Parma. And you know, the Parma really is an indicator of what's happening. I think in your business, as a pub, we've got. 
42 items on our our menu right and we i lost sleep over you know how we what we put together on the menu what goes in what shouldn't go in are we going to have too many too many items now we do sell through the menu quite a bit and i think uh, one of the things that i've i've said in the past we um the first day we opened properly to the public we sold one of every one of those 42 menu items which was a really good indication that we had got it right you know we had there's and since then nothing has really missed there hasn't been anything that we've kind of gone oh well, that needs that needs to come off so that that was a good indication that we had the spread right but in saying that even though we're selling through all those items and it's every item's holding its own and every section on the menu is holding its own our number one seller is the chicken parma our number two seller is the chicken schnitzel. So between those two chicken fillets on a plate with chips and salad, you know, it's it's doing about 30, 35% of the of, of the volume of food that we're doing. So it's you know, it it and it, it is an indicator that when people go to the pub, they, they want to keep things some people want to keep things simple. What in saying that, we're finding with our locals, we're finding that we're seeing them two to three times a week. You know, we got a good loyal base already, some of which we had before, some of whom we had in before. They're coming in for a parma on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. They're coming back with their friends for the steak on the when on a on a Saturday night or back in with the family for one of our specials or our market fish on a Sunday. So whilst they're, they're they're coming in for the parma, they're not just coming in for that. They're coming in for that on their first trip of the week, but then their second visit of the week they're they're coming for something else, you know, for for a different part of the menu. The price of the parma we can focus on. Like five years ago, what was a chicken parma? $19? Most places were doing a parma special at 15 The thought of a decent venue getting a chicken parma of any sort of decent quality on a plate for $15 now is just not, it's, it, it's, it's not possible. You just can't. There's so many indications now, so many factors that drive that price to $28, $29. And that even at that, we're holding at 28 I've kept a very keen eye on what everybody's doing in the industry and what the price of the Parma is and the Parma index that you mentioned. And 28 is now becoming very hard. 29 it's not going to be long before the average price is $30. I know there have been some headlines of places, you know, that are already at the $30, $32 mark. Are people still going to come to the pub for a parma when it's 30 bucks? I don't know. If you really want it, I mean, or if you go through the menu and the other main courses are 38 I mean, it, it's a reality, isn't it? I mean, talk about all the costs that are going into putting that parma on a plate. Yeah, well, that's well. There's, I mean, there's a whole heap of things that have you know increased in price, not just the the raw materials. All of our utilities have gone up, insurances have gone up, and obviously staff costs have gone up as well. Um, and that's that's a sort of a, a factor that the industry as a whole needs to and has had to deal with over the last few years. Um, I think the playing field has been leveled in that regard, which is great. Since COVID, there's been a few changes. Obviously, there's been um, there's been law changed as well. It's you know the Wage Theft Act has come into come into play since COVID, which is great. It means now that operators have to be doing the right thing. So everyone, so the $15 Parma going on a plate is, isn't a thing anymore because they have to pay their staff properly now. And that wasn't happening in the industry. There were too many dark horses in the industry that weren't doing the right thing that, you know, made it difficult for those like ourselves who are doing the right thing to compete on price. Whereas now the playing field has been leveled and, you know, everybody in the industry is paying what they should be. And so, you know, that this is having an impact on price, but this is where the prices need to be. You know, if hospitality staff are being paid correctly and treated correctly, this is the price of putting a parma on a plate. And, and we, you know, as an industry, we have to, we have to accept that. 
It's really, really interesting to hear you say that the Wage Theft Act has had such an impact because people are only... I guess, found guilty under those laws if they've deliberately underpaid. So, I mean, we know that the um, the award is complex and people do get caught out with some of the, the detail around that and inadvertently underpay. But you're saying that people have been deliberately underpaying until that law came in. I, I don't think it's a secret that the industry had a, had a lot of that going on. Um, to be honest, and I think there were there were the where operators that that you know were not paying the right thing. I mean, and this is where this is why laws like this had to come into pass. I think um, for staff in in hospitality now, the great benefit has been that there's been a sh- there's, there's been a shortage of staff. There have been these changes that have m- made operators pull up their socks, you know, and actually do things properly. And it put the it actually put the um, the staff members in hospitality in a really good driving seat to be able to choose the right employer and not just take you know take this this for 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 being the norm that people were being underpaid or not being paid their super or being asked to do extraordinary amounts of hours and only get paid for you know for 38 hours a week i think now um, employees have a have have got the ability to choose the right employer and to choose the employer A that's doing the right thing that actually looks after them and looks after their their balance. And I think those that are doing that, you know, we like to think we are we're, we're in that kind of category, are reaping the rewards of having better staff and staff that actually will hang around longer, will want to stay in the business. That in itself, you know, having staff that that regularly see time and time again and gel together as a team and get to know the workings of the business, then that can only have a positive impact on on the business as it runs over time and i think now if you're not doing that as an employer i don't think you're going to be getting the best staff that are out there in the in in a, in a tight industry where staff are actually hard to come by well i mean do you think that those different conditions will also draw people into the industry or you know you won't have that attrition that's been really common where people perhaps have have families and think oh it'd be nice to see them occasionally like do you think it means that uh, not only will you have staff that stick around longer at your business, but that they'll stay in the industry um, in general. Hundred percent, absolutely. I mean, if you if you were a chef ten years ago looking into the industry, I mean, the prospect of having a work a work balance or a family balanced life was just non-existent. I don't think. I mean, I think even even the working conditions, I think that you were sort of expected to work in, were a lot different to now. Now you can actually have a really positive career, go into it, and know that it's a career that you can go on into your family life. And or or even have have interests outside of work. I mean, there were there were plenty of conditions that that were that the industry didn't allow for anyone in hospitality in a full time role to actually have any other interests because they, they just had to work so so much. Um, now staff, I think, have got that balance. They have the ability to you know, I I think as a whole, the hospitality staff industry are are a lot. You know, they're more into sports. They've got more time to actually you know do things for themselves they come back into work refreshed and there's not this you know we've got most of our full-timers doing their their full-time working week in four days they've got three days to actually kick back and relax and you know get into their sports or get into their hobbies or go back and see their family interstate for a couple of days and then come back to work and do their do their four days um i think the prospect of working in the kitchen now is a lot you know kids now will look back will will look at the at, at chefing in, in, in a different way than than they would have 10 or 15 years ago. I think it's a much better um, opportunity career-wise for those coming out of culinary schools. 
So, I mean, as we've alluded to, you know, the costs get passed down the line and they just have to be passed on to customers uh, for the business to operate. But then pubs have always been a democratic place where, you know, like like the stall, fruit, you know, guys working at the fruit stall across the road can come in and have their knockoff and, you know, and get a good feed at a good price. Like, how do you balance that sort of democratic uh, place that pubs have in our culture with the need to, you know, um, yeah, reflect the realities of doing business at every step along the chain. I think I think that if, if you can be open, I think if you can be open and sort of transparent with you know how how we put a put our our prices on a on a menu, you know, or you know we we get often we we often get asked why our Carlton Draft is is the is the price it is, and then there's a there's a local lager that's a dollar fifty less a pot, and we'll just be transparent and just you know it all comes down to how how we buy it, the the relationships that we have with the with the suppliers and the suppliers that are, are willing to work with us. And you know we we've been able to build even in the short time we were in the business before our build, we were able to build really good relationships with the suppliers. When you do that and you become a loyal customer of your suppliers, then you will get the ability to do good deals with them, and therefore pop stuff on the on the menu that offers more value than those who don't work work well with you you know so so i think being you know being able to pass that on and we are a small tight tight-knit crew that have I, I pass on all of our business details like that with our staff so that they know how it works you know eventually you know you want your staff to be either taking over the reins in some of your element of the business are going on and doing their own thing so you know for them learning how, how that works and even passing that on to the customers if customers know that something costs us x and we charge y for it and that's just our margin and our costs then there's there's never going to be an issue if we if we buy something for ten dollars and we're charging 120 dollars on the on the wine list for it then then your customers are going to look at every single thing you do so I think just 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 having a sort of an honesty and a transparency with with those who are interested to know it is um, is the way to go. And we I'm I'm always happy to talk through that kind of thing with with customers who are interested. You know, we've we associate pubs with beer, but I'd love you to talk about wine and cocktails. I mean, where are punters sitting with their drinks at the moment? Really interesting, and I I love stats. I love you know we've we've got a PO, well every, every POS system now can spit out every single report that you want and graphs, and I love digesting this. I I believe, and you know I think this is sort of happening in the industry, but the the volume that's being consumed is obviously down, and we've seen we've all seen the numbers on that. But I don't think people's spend is coming down in a proportionate rate. People are happy to spend. The same amount, I believe, on two or three drinks of quality, something that they might get a bit of a story behind or, you know, it's a locally produced from a smaller artisan producer and spend the same on two or three of those and, you know, five or six pints of a mass produced beer. So we, we have found our cocktails and wine sales are outweighing our beer sales, which what you would assume in a traditional pub that would be the other way. Um, and that's by value and by volume as well. So we have got a bit of a wine focus. Our spirits are all Australian as well. So we have got a good cocktail program that Sam Rose, our GM, runs. So when you're producing, I think when you're producing, you know, good wine and good spirits and we've we're continually putting things on by the glass that we hand sell. So, we are, you know, our locals are now getting in the habit of asking us what, you know, 
what we have open today. It's not just the 15 or 16 wines that are on the on the list by the glass. We've always got something special. So I think people are, we, you know, when, when there is, when, when we're doing the hard yards to bring decent booze to people's tables, they're willing to spend on it. They don't necessarily want to stick to, like I said, the 10 pints of mass-produced beer. So it's definitely a trend that I'm, you know, I think I'm seeing in the industry as well, that people are, people are more health conscious as well. You know, people are more, more likely to sit on two or three glasses of wine than, you know, five pints of beer for the health, the health purpose also. Mm, and, and I'm sure that plays into the atmosphere in the pub. I mean, not that you can't get drunk off wine and cocktails and, you know, get a bit rowdy, but when you're talking about the grandma who's there to see the grandchildren and everyone around her is sipping on $25 glasses of wine, then I guess that sort of feeds into the atmosphere that you want to create. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you you sort of want it to be a to be a place that everybody can come into. There, there are plenty of places if you want to go and watch watch the races and have a punt and have a have a bit of a shout. There are plenty of public bars still in Melbourne that you you, you know you're going to get that atmosphere in. Um, ours is not one of those. Ours is more more of a sort of a it's a you know it's a it's a food focused decent pub where you can meet your mate for a glass of wine or or a pot of beer, um, or you can have have lunch with the family and and your grandmother can sip on twenty five dollar. Um, glasses of single vineyard pinot, you know. So it's and, and I think that's the offer. That's the offer that we have without trying to be be something for 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 everyone. We're definitely not. We haven't got a TAB. We haven't got a pool table. Um, our sports are on, you know, live and loud sporadically. So you're you're not always going to come in and f- find the AFL on on live and loud. So I think we, we're different in a sense to to some traditional pubs. But I mean, I guess we're we're food focused and service focused. I mean, that's the one thing as well that I, I really wanted to bring bring the element into this into this um this establishment was good old school hospitality you know it's often lost and i think you know we we sort of need to breed it back into the industry as a whole just really simple i don't know if, if we if the industry um in Melbourne became complacent and we forgot how to say hello to guests as they came in or we forgot to say thanks for coming in but just bringing those simple elements of hospitality back in is what we we really want to focus on good service we make sure all of our staff know their SH1T about what they're what what we're putting in a glass or putting on a plate so we have a huge element of uh, training that goes in and we just want to make sure that you know, when the staff are happy and feel like they're confident with everything on the list and, and confident with the way we want service to be, that flows into the customer. The customer then hasn't got, doesn't have to think when they come in. The customer sort of comes in and relaxes and we do the heavy lifting for them. Mm. Um, Vincent, I'd love to track back to the build of the venue and the way that you've renovated it. You know, there was obviously a lot of respect um, paid to the people that had been there for so long before, but how did that feed into a sustainable build? So yeah, it was it was very much, and again, partnering with well the the um, the building owners, the A and M F, the Nursing Federation, have got a huge sustainability um, program within their uh, within the branch, and they wanted to make sure that this build was done as sustainably as possible, not just using materials that forevermore would be sustainable, but also using. Um, material from the original building in the new build. So we partnered with um, the architects for Bailey Ward. Bailey Ward then brought in um, a projects team called Revival, based out of um, Collingwood. Revival came in and basically took away any materials from the original building at the time of demolition, took them away. They became the custodians of it. That's the term that they use. And then throughout the project, they advised us as to where they could use those materials again. So they took out timber that was in the building for 140 years. 
there was Jara, there was Oregon there that was 110 years old that we've basically put back into the, the building. So all of our all of our joinery, our tabletops are all made from the old ceiling joists, the timber flooring that was in the original building, bringing more of that history back in, like I said earlier, bringing that history of what has happened in the building back into the, the, the new building. We managed to salvage the old keg chute. So the, the wooden keg chute that was in there for 70 or 80 years that all the barrels of beer went down into the cellar. That was, um, that's beautiful jarra as well. So we've actually made all of our charcuterie boards and our cheese boards from that using, uh, using that material. The building itself is Passive House certified. Passive House is a German um, um, certification for how a building, it's generally how residential new builds are built in terms of sustaining uh, energy within the building and using as little energy as possible. A lot of... Um, passive house homes are now being built without any heating or cooling and they they're built in a way that they will maintain a constant temperature without having to use any energy to do that so the building the um, levels two to seven which is where the AMF have got the short stay accommodation for their members that's 100 percent passive house so it's built in a way that it's essentially airtight um, and uses very little energy to heat and cool those hotel rooms so it's the first um, commercial building to have that sustainability uh, certification. It was also built using CLT, which is cross-laminated timber. So instead of using a steel structure, it's actually a wooden, it's a timber structure that actually holds the building up. Again, that's a very sustainable practice. It's a lot more sustainable than, um, than using steel. So the whole building, and even in our practices now, all of our food scraps, and this is happening in a lot of places now, but all of our food scraps, any of our sort of stuff that comes back off the plate is going into a composter. Um, we're making sure that as much as we can, and you can buy a lot of our local spirits, even like we buy spirits from Starwoods. We have a distillery down in South Wharf who provides um, some of our spirits in 20-litre, 5-litre, 10-litre drums, and we just get one glass bottle and we and we refill that. And if, so those practices now, so the building itself being so sustainably built and so much thought being put into the design of how we can you know reuse all those materials that made our tabletops on our bar would have gone to landfill ordinarily but they were they were reclaimed out of the old building so but we've made sure that our ongoing practices are as sustainable as we can be and as new things pop up and we can do more you know we can use less glass we'll we'll do that that's incredible and i mean it's a great i, th- I feel like that's also going to um, feed into staff engagement. Like it's just um, there's such good stories to tell, but also a business that uh, I'm sure people feel like you know it's it's a business for the future. Well, we we hope so. I mean, and, and that's you know we're we're here for the long term, and I think you know we've we've had a brand new start. Um, we've we have got grand plans to do a lot in in the building but the building itself needs to generate its own history which it has to this day we want to be part of the next sort of story you know we want to make sure that people are and we we still have people coming into the place looking around going god this has changed i haven't been here in a while you're like well when's the last time you were here people have been coming to this pub on a on a trip to melbourne over decades you know we've got people who have been in who've come into us now haven't been in in 10 years 
but their average length of time between trips is 10 years. You know, so it, it's a building that people have known it's there forever. We want to make sure that we're there forever and that they do keep us on their 10-year trip cycle. We're, because of our positioning across from Queen Vic Market, we get a lot of, um, you know, tourist trade at the at the weekends. And we, we, we the building is on people's pit stop. They go to the Queen Vic Market, they go to that pub across the road for a pint. And they're usually expecting those three brothers who own the place for 45 years to be there, you know. And we and you know they get a, a little bit of a surprise when they see the place opened up and there's no pool table, but they get a warm welcome. And we sometimes have to convince them to stay. But once they stay and they 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 have the chat, then you know we we talk about the, you know we talk about the previous owners and tell them well they might actually come in. You know they they they're often in the building. They they come in and, and see us all the time, um, and then you'll you'll have a producer from the market that they'll recognise. You know we we love the fact that as many of the traders that we buy from come over and have a few pots at the bar, you know, and we, I will often be, be spotted on the floor telling a table of four or whatever who've ordered four chicken parmas that that's the chicken guy. You know, that's, that's Luke. He, he does your chickens or that's, that's our beef. That's the guy from Hagen's and that's your oyster guy. And, and that, that to me really is the personality of the pub. It's got that. We've got this beautiful horseshoe shaped bar, which is something that I took from a place in Dublin, actually. Um, I, I believe that a proper bar needs to have that horseshoe shape so that people can just sit around and chat. Now, whether you want to or not, you can sit in the corner on your own and read the paper. Or if you want to chat and you're at one of these bars, it's hard not to talk to your neighbor. So we'd often have five or six different market traders sitting around the bar and then you'd have a random tour you know a um, couple of people who are here on on holiday will end up chatting to the you know to the chicken guy or they'll end up chatting to the oyster guy yeah that's just gold um we could talk for hours there are so many stories but i want to just touch on one last thing which is the accommodation above the pub um not the nurses bit which is fantastic but the rooms that you're developing um for yeah for anybody i mean so many pubs have got these these rooms that used to be accommodation but they're so rarely used these days um tell us your thinking behind uh yeah opening them up as accommodation I think there's a mass. I think there's a lot of these rooms. Like most corner pubs in Melbourne, have got have got a level one with rooms in them. And those you know, ordinarily, well, initially those rooms would have been built as uh, places for lodgings, be it long term or short term. When we took over the building, we had eleven rooms on level one, and there were three or four long termers in there, and then the rest of the rooms were full of. Broken furniture, tables, stock, crap, you know, files that, that were never going to get opened again. Um, and we decided, you know what, there's, we're actually, there's, there's, there's a revenue stream here that I think, you know, we could use, particularly with our, our location. So we, we knew we only had a short period of time. We, we tidied them up. We put a lick of paint on them, put in some Ikea furniture and started to sell them. Now, we only had shared bathrooms, but we made it really, really clear in our advertising that you're in a pub across from, up, up from the hotel it's shared bathrooms. We we really played it down, in fact, and in fact, we we had ripped out two ceilings in the in the in the pub to sort of create some atmosphere. So there was very little insulation between level one and the, and the ground floor. So we would even in our advertisements, we would even tell people you could hear a conversation on table ten downstairs if you're staying above. So you know if if you're a light sleeper, don't don't book. So but we did really really well. I think, and we, we, we figured out that because of the charm of staying above a pub, and there's lots of visitors that don't need to come to a hotel or don't need, you know, all the bells and whistles. They need, they're coming down for the footy or coming down for the racing. They really just need a bed for the night before they head back up home. 
So when we were designing this, we had the opportunity to put more, you know, pub space or hospitality on level one. But I thought, you know what, let's let's keep the bones of what a traditional pub has and keep those rooms. So we've got eight rooms, which are just about to soft launch. Actually, grand final weekend, we've got our first um, our first guests in there. They're eight, what we're calling micro hotel rooms. And it, that sort of, we sort of want to play it down a bit again because they're not massive. They are small. They're between 18 and 25 square meters. And I think a key that I've learned in, in selling accommodation is that you really need to be honest with what people are getting. The first five minutes that guests check into your accommodation is, is really going to determine whether or not they enjoy their stay. And if you've oversold a room or the size of a room or used tricky photography to, to make a room look like it's three, three times the size that it is, you're just setting yourself up for, uh, you know, a very difficult experience for the guest because they've got this expectation and you've sort of oversold them something that's not going to meet that. So we, I'm, I'm using the term micro so that automatically people know you're, you're, you're not getting a huge hotel room. And then we're going to play on the charm of staying above a pub. You know, we've actually got some some uh, beer-focused art that go, that's going into the pub, and we're really playing on letting people know that you're above a really good pub. So whenever you need to, you know, chill out, come downstairs for a drink and chat to, chat to Aaron at the bar. That sounds great. How much are the rooms? So they'll be they'll be focused on market. They'll be kind of tracking the market price. So they'll be anywhere between one hundred and fifty and two twenty per night. Um, they've got um, they've all got um, en suites um, in them as well. So the shared bathroom thing is gone. That's why we've we've reduced our, our footprint from eleven down to, to eight to ensure they've all got en suites. But depending on the market price um, for what it is, it'll it'll track the market but it'll, it'll be it'll be affordable and there'll be a couple of beers on arrival in the fridge for those who do uh, who do stay with us oh, it sounds so good Vincent I just love everything you're saying it really makes me want to come to the pub so <laughs> that's good isn't it <laughs> I'm thinking could I is there a reason I could need to stay there I don't know but um, no it all sounds really really great so good to have a chat um, yeah really we could talk for hours so let's let's um, catch up another time again and dig into more good pub tales but thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through the Central Club Hotel today really appreciate it thanks Danny it's been awesome thanks for listening this is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant we air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives we want to hear from you as well if you have something that needs to be said about a topic get in touch so we can include your perspective contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on insta at dirty linen podcast we can't wait to hear from you this is a deep in the weeds production